Hello, everyone. Good morning. Come on in. Come on in. I'm glad to see you all. And if you haven't had a chance to meet Bishop Stephen here, our special guest, we are honored to have uh, Bishop Kazimba from Uganda, soon to be Archbishop of Uganda. A little while longer until that day in March, but uh, you know you'll hear more about him uh, in the service. So uh, why don't we begin in prayer, and then I will make a start. We'll see. Does everybody, did everybody get a copy of the little outline? You might want a pen or a pencil. I left it blank on purpose uh, so you could fill stuff in. Do we have some pens? Uh, we've gotten those put out. Um, hey, Anthony, do you mind helping Ann find some pens or pen, pens in the, I think in that room between the, um, where the copier is? I think there may be some up there. So anyway, I just left some blanks there for you all to take notes and fill in, and hopefully that will help those who learn that way, learn a little bit better. Um, So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Lord, we take that declaration of Job, and we pray it would root deep in our hearts knowing that you are alive, you are seated at the right hand of the Father, you intercede for us continually, and you've given us your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, uh, risen Lord, that you would uh, anoint our minds and our hearts as we uh, look to the Word, to this particular Word in the book of Job, and that we would find in it, Lord, uh, wisdom, the deep and abiding wisdom, which is the fear of you, Lord. So bless us now. Bless uh, my words, Lord, and uh, the work in the study. We pray that something good would come from this, Lord. Anything that is of me, we pray would just uh, blow away as the chaff, so that the seed of truth that is from your mouth would be what would remain. And that that seed would plant in our hearts, and deep roots would be uh, laid down, bear much fruit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on in. Come on in. <clears throat> so, uh, just to start off this, this teaching on Job, I just got to let you know, you know, I had a great trip to the Holy Land. I'm very grateful for that. But y'all, I am struggling. Okay, so I, you know, it's what is it, 12 and a half hour flight. I didn't sleep very well. I only had, you know, the, the middle grade seat. So all those first class people were up there, laid out, just as comfortable as they could possibly be. I'm sitting there, so I didn't really sleep very much. And uh, so I landed, and, and, uh, and then I, uh, I got a stomach bug when I landed. Like, right after I was home, started going, oh, I don't feel good, and then I really didn't feel good. And it was bad all day long. Uh, and to top it all off, my wife left me with the children as soon as I got home to go to a retreat. Uh, uh, her camp is having its 100th anniversary, and so she's gone up to a thing up in North Carolina. So I've been caring for the children all by myself. 
And then um, I hadn't finished my notes on this stuff. I'd done all my reading on the trip, but I hadn't finished my notes. So I was up late last night. So I'm really dragging, y'all. I'm suffering. It's almost Job-like, what I'm experiencing. (laughs) So here's a question. Is this book principally about suffering? Or is there more going on? Like, why is Job counted as a book of wisdom? Right? Because it's different than from the other books of wisdom. The other books of wisdom that we are looking at in this series... They feel more like in that category, at least in my mind, of this sort of category of wisdom, like wise sayings, um, uh, wise adages, uh, ways of understanding um, uh, uh, who God is in in, in sort of uh, um, kind of idea form. And then we have this, which is, is kind of this strange combination of narrative and poetry and there's a character, there's other figures in the thing. Um, uh, it, it doesn't fit the same mold that the other books of wisdom do. Am I right? Is that kind of your experience as well? And so the question might become like, like okay, well then why is this a book of wisdom? What is going on in this book of Job? Um, is it really just a book to help us learn how to deal with suffering? Yes, to some extent, but that's not the, the, the key point, right? So it's, I, I've been kidding people People are like, man, Pete, you look really tired. You look terrible, Pete. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm tired and whatever. But, you know, I'm doing a teaching on Job. I've got nothing to complain about, right? You know that, that sort of tendency that we often have of, of doing the comparative work of our suffering. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, this idea that I will help, be helped in my suffering by at least I'm not that bad off. And Job is kind of your go-to guy for, well, it could be worse than what I'm enduring right now. Although, after you heard what I said at the beginning of this, you may not think so. You may think, no, Pete, that's the worst thing we've ever heard. No. Um, so what I'm going to do to begin off is I just want to start with the book, kind of just an introduction of, like, what is this book, um, you know, just in pure uh, uh, form, like, how is it set up, uh, what are the, the characters, things like that. All right, so let's, let's talk about the scene. So this book is done in an interesting way. It's almost like a split screen back and forth, like on a TV show when you have you know different scenes or different narr- like different um, things that are going on simultaneously. And my phone's ringing in in the middle of my class from Churchill, Tennessee. You know, Churchill. I have so many friends in Churchill, Tennessee. I've never even heard of it. Um, so it's got this this these two things going on and. The, the two scenes are, first we have this place called the land of Uz, uh, which is, according to chapter 1, Job is the most prosperous man of the east. Now, what are we talking about here? Where is Uz and the east of what? Well, most scholars, as they look at the different um, the, the places from which all the friends come and some other places where we hear of the land of Uz, mentioned it's probably somewhere in the southeast of now Palestine. So it would be east of uh, the uh, um, Jordan Valley in the southern portion, what we would call now the Negev, the desert, the Negev. In fact, my trip that I was just on, we began in the Negev. So I can imagine this place where Job is from. And it is a place of just desert, with occasional oases. 
And if you read about um, uh, Job here in the first chapter, in the very first part of the first chapter, it must be that this guy lives in an oasis. And the way that even today wealth is understood amongst the Bedouins that live in this area, it's based on the numbers of, of animals that you have. Camels is, are the top of the, of the food chain. And then you have uh, goats and sheep. And, and, that's, and then after that, there's nothing else, right? And then you start to have some other ways of understanding. But, but even still, the Bedouins are understood, they're well, they're understood to be wealthy based on the number of creatures that they have under their care. And we even see that here in the description of Job. So that's probably where he's from. That's probably the land of Uz, uh, for whatever that's worth. So this is where the this, this, this story begins, is in the land of Uz. That's the scene. And it's describing this man who is both very, very prosperous and very, very um, uh, uh, faithful, righteous before the Lord. So much so that he even will uh, pray and have special prayers for his children just in case they aren't uh, uh, as, as, as righteous as they need to be. He's trying to keep them from uh, sin, kind of keep them from curse. Uh, and, and so he wants God in their hearts. And so he does this continually. That's scene one. Scene two, the other setting, is the throne room of heaven. And we have this very unusual scene where uh, the Satan arrives. He's not from there anymore, right? It says... Uh, that the Lord says, how did you come here? Like, what are you doing here? And it begins this uh, 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 dialogue between the Satan and the Lord. We'll get to, those, uh, to that in a little bit longer. So you have these two scenes, and so these sort of two realities, the earthly reality and the spiritual reality, are going on simultaneously and are interrelated. Right? So Job is, is interceding on behalf of his children, and he's praying, he's offering sacrifice, he's very well acquainted with and oriented towards uh, the Lord, uh, and we have now this other scene of the throne room of heaven, where there are, um, uh, uh, there's work going on, there's conversation going on that is going to have real impact in the earthly realm, right? Those are the scenes. Who are the actors? Well, the first actor, of course, is the namesake of the book, Job. Job, this name, uh, has, there's arguments as to what the name means. Um, it probably comes from this root word, Yob, Y-B, in the Hebrew characters, if you wanted to um, put it down. And the meaning of that is to, uh, one of the meanings that, that, that some people say is to be without a father, and I don't think that that's the right one. I think this, this one is better just based on what's in the rest of the, of the book. And that is to be an enemy. Be an enemy is the name uh, meaning, the root meaning. Or one whom Yahweh has treated as an enemy. And so if you think, uh, if you've read the, the, the book of Job, there's this, this verse in chapter 13, verse 24, where uh, Job says, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He says to the Lord. So he's basically saying, Why do you hide your face and call me Job? Okay? So that's, that's probably, I think, the most likely meaning of the name Job. So he's character number one, uh, and we'll talk a lot about him here in a bit. Uh, the second character, of course, is the Lord. And if you notice in your, in your Bibles, you normally when you see the word Lord spelled in all caps, what is that name? Do you know? Yahweh. That's right. So that's the Lord Yahweh. And so he is the second character. Um, we hear from him at the beginning, and boy, do we hear from him at the end. In the middle, he's pretty silent. Uh, third character, Satan. Satan, the accuser. 
tempter, the condemner. Okay? That's the third character. And he speaks at the, at the beginning, and then we don't hear from him again. He does not, he's in the prologue, he's not in the epilogue. That's important. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Then we have Job's friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. Don't ask me what those names mean. I did not look them up. They're, they're places. And again, they're places that are uh, in that vicinity that kind of encircle that part of Palestine there in the bottom. And so some is kind of in modern-day uh, Jordan, one's in kind of modern-day Syria, and one is in uh, going towards like the Gaza Strip, that side of things, okay? Um, so kind of encircles that, that part where we think Job lived. He would have friends in the, in the area. And then we have this other character that shows up at the end, this young whippersnapper named Elihu, uh, son of Barachel, the Buzite, or Buzite, and, uh, and so we'll hear about him in a while. He's kind of an interesting kind of uh, addition that comes in uh, towards the end of the book. The date of this book looks to be an ancient book, uh, probably uh, setting likely being before 1000 BC. Here's why. Uh, in 1 verse 5, we see Job perform his own sacrifice without priesthood or shrine of any sort. So he's sort of self-contained in his religion. That's ancient. Chapter 1, verse 3. Um, like Abraham's and Jacob's, Job's wealth is measured in sheep, camels, oxen, asses, and servants. So that's kind of, again, an ancient thing. Interestingly enough, again, it's still done today, but it begins, and it's, it's, it's articulated in the same ways that, that we hear uh, Abraham and Jacob's wealth uh, articulated. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, his land, it seems, is subject to raids uh, uh, and pillaging tribes. And so there's no sense in which any kind of nation has been established or any kind of real uh, uh, um, uh, sort of solid nation is there. It's, it's sort of uh, the wild, wild west, if you will, which would have been an ancient kind of reality. Uh, that's one thing that the uh, uh, scholars say. Um, and then in verse 42, verse 16, at the end, when things are all back to uh, really good, Job's lifespan is said to be 140 years, which is matched only uh, in the books of the Pentateuch. So again, it uh, seems like an old old work. And then finally, this the, the epic quality of it, this, this sort of sweeping narrative, these great poems these speeches and responses and, and this kind of back and forth that you see in the book of Job is um, similar to other uh, uh, books like in Genesis and Ugaritic um, literature. The Ugarite um, literature, it's an ancient Israelite culture, um, which is what is in modern day Syria now. They found uh, tablets with some of these uh, back in the 1920s. They found tablets with this, this language and this kind of literature and um, these myths and, and, um, and uh, ways of writing which uh, are, are similar to this. So ancient. So it's, an, uh, it's a very old book um, by most uh, by es most es estimations. All right, let's talk about the structure of this book. I just put it in your outline there. Um, so the beginning of the book is what's called the prologue, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10 which is the uh, description of Job as a righteous man, the wager in the throne room of heaven, and then Satan being let loose on Job and attacking uh, Job 
and taking away his health and um, his children uh, and um, that sort of thing. Then we have the dialogue begin. Um, we have uh, uh, the uh, three friends arrive on the scene. They've heard about Job's plight. The first thing that they do is the best thing you can possibly do in a time of great grief and mourning. They just come and are present with him. And if you could just sort of put a pin in that and just sort of stop those guys from doing anything else from that point forward, they would be model uh, uh, consolers. They would be model uh, grief counselors as they are present. And just don't underestimate the value of the ministry of presence. You know, we are notoriously bad at talking to people who are enduring uh, 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 the, the loss of loved ones. Aren't we just the worst at that? And so we say all these unhelpful things. And, and, and every time I've ever talked to somebody who's lost a, a loved one, and I say, what was the most helpful thing that was ever said? And they're usually like, mm, not much about that people said, just that they were present. People that were just present. They just showed up and just said, you know, I'm here. I don't know what to say. I'm just sorry, and I'm here. Yeah? So that's what they do. Um, and then uh, we have, uh, in, uh, in the dialogue goes from chapter 2, verse 11, with the arrival of the three friends, and then there's a little, uh, a couple different little um, things that happen in the midst of it, but mostly it goes all the way through to 42, verse 6, okay? Back and forth between uh, these different um, people speaking, different characters speaking. Then we have, so chapter 3, Job kind of, goes aside and he has this lament that he offers up, cursing the day of his birth. Like, this suffering is so bad that it would have been better if I'd never been born. And he uses this imagery of darkness. Okay, and we'll come back to that in a minute. This imagery of darkness. My birthday is a day of darkness. And uh, it, uh, is, it's a devastating chapter um, just to be at that place of just utter, utter crushed to that point. Chapter 4 to 14, that's Act 1 of the Friends' speeches and Job's responses. And this is more where the Friends sort of offer their philosophy of, of sin and righteousness, uh, blessing and curse. Okay, they kind of describe how God works and how things work. That's Act 1. Act 2, chapters 15 to 21, they begin to move into advice. And giving uh, Job an idea of like what he should be doing about this, and why this is happening, and what his steps should be. And chapter two, uh, twenty-two to thirty-one is Act Three. It's more advice and Job's continual assertion of his innocence, his refuting their take on things uh, over and over again. Then in 28, we have this funny uh, sort of spur that comes in the midst of the, of the, uh, the book. And it's this uh, song of wisdom that Job uh, sings right in the middle of, of all of these dialogues. And it, it comes in and it, it is uh, a beautiful um, song. I'm going to talk more about that uh, later. And it kind of gets at the heart of why this is a book of wisdom and what real wisdom is and what we really need to take from the book of Job. Um, it's, uh, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. I encourage you to, to, to read that chapter. I think it was part of the homework. Read that chapter and just kind of ruminate on it. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of, of poetry. 
Um, then verses, uh, chapters 32 to 37, we have the speeches of Elihu, this, this young guy who's been sort of waiting and waiting, chomping at the bit to get in there and give his take on things, dadgummit. And um, he, is, he is very um, strong in his belief uh, about what's wrong with Job, what's wrong with these three friends, where everybody needs to stick it and you know, hush who God is. And in some ways, he's obnoxious. He's probably on to something, but he's missing the mark as well. So we'll talk a little bit more about Elihu later on. Then chapter 38, verse 1 to 41, verse 34. These are the pleas resistance of this book, the speeches of God. Were you there? And it is a doozy. Boy, does he put Job in his place. Powerful. Um, and it's the fact that these speeches occur, that's probably the main thing that Elihu gets wrong. He doesn't think God will condescend to speak to Job. And yet there he is speaking. Then we have 42 verses 1 to 6, and that's Job's confession and repentance after he's heard the, the voice of the Lord. And then finally, 42 verse 7 to the end, verse 17, the epilogue. Uh, the rest of the story and what it is from there. Okay, so that's the structure of the book in kind of broad brushstrokes. Any questions so far? Nope? Okay, good. Alrighty. So if this is a wisdom book, what is the wisdom of this wisdom book? All right, well, we begin with what I'll call Satan's anthropology, okay? So Satan has a, 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 an assumption that he's making. Uh, he basically has a, a mindset of quid pro quo, that that's how things really work. That's how these wretched little creatures down here on earth these little human beings. That's why they do anything that's worthwhile. It's all for self-gain, really. It's sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, that's how he understands man's so-called righteousness. So in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1, he believes that the only reason, so God says, well, consider Job. Like, look at Job. He's righteous. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's be honest here, Lord. The only reason that Job fears the Lord, is righteous, is devoted to you, is it's because he's got it good in this life. He's covered up with wealth and prosperity and all these good things. And that's why he's showing you this devotion. As soon as it's taken away, he's, he's to the exits. I guarantee you, that's how this works. And so this precipitates this wager between Satan and and the Lord. Controversial bit of scripture. If we think on this in sort of human terms, and uh, yeah, don't try, it's a hard one, so remember where this is all taking place. It's happening in the throne room of heaven. It's happening in eternity. It's happening in a place of, of infinite righteousness and holiness. And so when we apply our own uh, 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 sort of notion of, of how things operate, this seems like the worst most horrible thing that the Lord of hosts could ever do. Like, what kind of God would throw his person, you know, his guy, Job, into something as horrible as this to prove a point to the saint? Maybe there's more going on. That's the way it seems. Am I right? That's the way it seems. So they have this wager. Um, and um, could I ask, Alex, do you mind going and closing the door at 
that goes into the courtyard and these doors are also we're going to have every bit of air conditioning just make its way right out into the courtyard. So the wager happens. Um, and so then Satan does his attacking of Job and then he exits the scene, never to return in the book. And this is significant because what it says is, first of all, the Satan has no authority. You notice that? All that he does is only by permission of the Lord. He's not from heaven anymore. It's kind of an accident that he's there, or at least uh, or it's, 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 he's not you know, meant to be there. Um, and so this wager and all of the suffering and all of the uh, uh, restoration, all of that uh, is completely under the sovereignty of the Lord. And the fact that the Satan doesn't come back at the end and get told by the Lord, see, I told you so, just shows how insignificant he is in comparison to the Lord. Okay? That's not an accident by the author. That is a purposeful act. It just fades into, into obscurity. Okay? So that's Satan's anthropology. This is how Satan understands mankind. Okay? So what about from the, the earth end of things? The theology, like so how does man understand God and the spiritual realm and what's going on up there? So let's start with the, the theology of Job's friends. Interestingly, they present what I would call the conventional wisdom. Um, uh, conventional wisdom, which is from of old, chapter 8, verses 8 to 13, and then chapter 15, verses 70 to 20, this is where they kind of articulate this. But it is the same idea of quid pro quo. Um, that's how the kingdom of God must work. If you scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. The righteous get good things, the wicked get bad things, and the three friends present a God, so they, it's a God of retribution. That's how they understand the order of things between earth and heaven. And if you read your Old Testament, you, you could argue that there's, there's sort of there's support for that principle. You do see something that looks a, a lot like that. Um, but the, the thing that separates that from this, what these friends do, is the order of things. So in the rest of the Old Testament, it's done from cause to effect. Right? So do these wretched things, and there will be these retributions that will come. There will be these, these curses that will come bad consequences that will come. What these friends are doing here is they've got it the other way around, right? So they're just sort of reversing the thing and they're looking to affect and are going back to assume cause, right? So you've got boils all over your space, you've got dead relatives, you've lost all your wealth, you clearly did something wrong, right? So affect to get to cause. Um, and so, yeah, they just believe that he must deserve it. That's the only thing they can imagine, is that you deserve this, so better do some thinking as to what you did wrong and repent. They actually try to comfort him with this old philosophy. Right? They actually are thinking that this will help Job. Um, it's a simple solution to his pain. It's a way out. Just figure out what you did wrong, repent of it, and get the suffering stuff lifted off of you. Problem. In the Old Testament, 
And in fact, Bishop Stephen will be preaching on this today in Psalm 37, for example. We have plenty of examples where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. So what do you do with that? How do we understand that? Um, let's put a bit of a wrench in the gears to that, that, that uh, conventional wisdom. The bigger problem, though, with this theology is that what it does to the relationship between man and God, what it turns God into, it turns him into kind of a petty uh, means to an end rather than an end in himself, right? If he is simply the one who gives and takes away and then gives again, all based on whether you're good or you're bad, you're righteous or you're, you're sinful, then Job and anyone else, they're only seeking God for personal gain. And that is not wisdom as we would understand it, biblically speaking. That's the bigger problem. Okay? So this book, in its core, is not a book about suffering so much as it is a book about our relationship to God and his relationship with us. Okay? Suffering just is the lens through which we're looking to understand that and to gain um, better wisdom about that. Right? So that's the theology of Job's friends. Then there's Job's theology. Um, and in a way, it is... And in a way, it kind of uh, mirrors their theology, but it, it keeps coming up against this, this ceiling of the fact that, but, but I didn't do anything wrong. I haven't sinned. I'm righteous. There's, this is undeserved. And so he, he's, he's not going with them, but he's still kind of, in his quandary, he's kind of still operating with that same kind of mentality, right? So the way I would describe this, remember I mentioned the, the darkness theme in his, in his chapter 3 you know, prayer uh, lament of his birth. Uh, it's a cry in the dark. And to me, this is so poignant. And I can say for myself, I know enough of you well enough to know that this has probably been something you've done at one time or another, and maybe doing right now. These, these moments where your, your theology is a cry in the dark. Um, chapter 3, verses uh, 4 uh, through 6a Job says, let that day be darkness. Talking about his birthday. May God above not seek it. No light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Let that night, let thick darkness seize it. That just is a, a apt description of where Job finds himself. He's like, I don't understand. I don't know which way is up. I cannot find the exits. I... I'm lost. His cry, though, in this is not so much about the suffering itself, the way I was at the beginning of this talk. It's, it's, it's undeserved. Like, why is this here? What meaning does it have? What are the implications, most importantly, for my relationship with God, the most important thing in his life? His real fear in this moment, in this book, is that God is somehow not who he thought he was. 
Job's defense honestly isn't so much a defense of Job. It's a defense of who God is. And this thing that's happening to me does not square with who God is. Okay? That's from Job's perspective. Um, what are the implications of this for God's word? If someone like me is suffering like this undeservedly, what does that say about God's word? Okay. Have you ever been in a place like that? I can think of times when, when yeah, things are at a level where I'm like, I don't know what this means for the, the God I thought I knew and believed in. But let us remember, we are finite. He is not. This is Job, not the Lord. So we'll, we'll keep going. So he fears that somehow he is an enemy of God. Right? I have become God's enemy. That must be the only way I can understand this, but I don't understand it because I don't think I did anything wrong, so why am I an enemy? So it's all, and it's darkness. Um, he fears the dark. Nihilism. If he doesn't have the signs of God's blessing, then he is either not there, God is not there, or he's not good. He's not articulating a theology of suffering, I don't think. But he's simply experiencing suffering and can't understand why. G.K. Chesterton has a wonderful introduction to Job, uh, and he writes this about the cry in the dark of Job. He says, He, Job, shakes the pillars of the world and strikes insanely at the heavens. He lashes the stars, but it's not to silence them. It is to make them speak. Where are you? What is happening? Why me? What is this about? Speak, Lord. And amazingly, in all of those pleadings and defenses and speeches, not once does Job try to manipulate or bargain with the Lord over suffering. I remember uh, uh, one of the priests my church growing up, his wife, their son, uh, started to show signs of, I don't know the name of the disease, but it's the thing where your body begins to reject your hair. You start losing hair. What's the name of that? Um, Propecia? What is it? Alopecia. Yeah. And so her son was showing signs of this. And she prayed this prayer. And I'm not meaning to throw under the bus because we've all prayed prayers like this. But she prayed this prayer where she said, Lord, if you'll heal him of this hair loss, I will never eat ice cream again. Because <laughs> I remember, because we were at our, they came to our lake house for, uh, and, and we were having ice cream and I offered her something. Like, oh, no, 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 I can't have it anymore because my son has hair. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So, um, right? So we've prayed prayers like that. Um, but Job doesn't do that. Not once. Interesting. All right. Let's move on. So there's sort of the theology that's at work here. And we haven't gotten to God's theology of himself, right? He doesn't have a theology. He's just God, right? So he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna set things straight as to what's really going on here in the end. So in the midst, again, I said there's this, this spur that comes in the midst of the, the book, chapter 28, the Song of Wisdom. And, um, and it, is, it is a beautiful uh, uh, poem. Um, and it is this question about where is wisdom? How is it found? It is this great mystery. And what he says is that man cannot locate it. 
Wisdom is not a man-to-God kind of exercise. Right? We do not generate, locate, um, and even if we could, it would be beyond prize and beyond our capacity to grasp it. Only God understands wisdom and the way to it. And we talked about this in the first introductory class of the personification of wisdom as this, this woman in the Old Testament, but ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of, Jesus, Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate, um, and it's brought to us, right? We don't go after God. God comes to us, including his wisdom, uh, his logos into the world. It became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and so, once again, we have this echo, uh, and I think we talked about this in the, in the first session as well. Maybe it's been talked about in the other sessions. I'm f- sorry, I haven't been here. But uh, the Proverbs 9.10, right? What is the beginning of wisdom? Does anybody remember? Fear of the Lord, okay? Fear of the Lord. Um, right relationship with the Lord. He is God, I am not. That's what fear of the Lord ultimately means, it seems to me. And so, he... God says to man, and here's the quote uh, in chapter 28, uh, verse 28, uh, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Okay? So even in the midst of all this horrible stuff that's going on, Job does not lose sight of where wisdom is found ultimately. And it's ultimately just, you just turn to the Lord, and it finds you. <laughs> it comes to you. Um, Fear the Lord. That is wisdom. Then we come to Elihu. This young, very uh, uh, pietistic, you know, he's kind of like the Saul of Tarsus of the Old Testament. He just comes in with spit and vinegar and knows it all and he's got it figured out and he's going to let Job know and his friends know. Okay, what's the essence of what Elihu has to say? Basically, it comes down to this. He's trying to um, uh, let them know that righteousness is the foundation of God's rule. In other words, God makes no mistakes. And so for you to even begin to even have a conversation with Job about what he can do and not do and what he should do and what he shouldn't do, three friends, you are out of line. There is no way that this man even gets to have an argument before the Lord. He's the Lord. And likewise to Job, he's like, you need to be silent. You have no case. Even if you think you have a case, you have no case. He's the Lord. I mean, he's just, rah. And God is, and so what he describes is this very distant and removed. And and it's, I would say it's almost a, a similar notion of God in the Islamic faith. Uh, very other, completely other, so other as to make any notion of you having relationship with him or any connection with him or any case before him or any uh, 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 mercy from him or any of that kind of stuff, completely absurd. It's interesting. I was in uh, um, Jerusalem and we were staying in a, in a, a hotel owned by Muslims in the Palestinian um, part of Jerusalem on the east side of Jerusalem. And a huge party of uh, Muslim, I guess, pilgrims, they were coming to Jerusalem from the UK, showed up in our, in our hotel. This massive group, about 100 people. And um, 
we had had our evening and, and we were wrapping up and there was a big group of them and I, uh, there was a, I was about to go back to my hotel room and um, the Lord just prompted my heart to, to go and speak to this guy over on the other side. He was watching a football match. It was Arsenal versus um, Manchester United. And uh, having lived in the UK, I speak that language. Um, and, and this guy, I mean, he, he was the most Muslim-looking of all the Muslims. There were some that were very Western. But this guy, he had the full beard and the long robe. And um, he looked like every picture of, um, you, know, uh, you know, the worst you know, kind of terrorist sort of situations that we've ever had. Um, and so, yeah, the Lord just said, you need to go over there and, and, and ask him about the game. And so I did. Part of my pilgrimage was learning this uh, deeper obedience to the micro commands, the little things that God says, go do this. And I want to just be attuned to that and, and do it. So not exactly comfortable with this idea. Uh, and yet I did it, right? So um, went over and just said, hey, what are you pulling for? Arsenal or Man U? And he's like, Arsenal. You like football? I'm like, yeah, I like football. And, uh, oh, you have a team? I'm like, yeah, Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool, well, uh, you know, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we start having a chat about, uh, about football and the game, and we're watching. And then, you know, what brings you to, to Palestine? I said, well, I'm on a pilgrimage. Oh, Christian? Yeah, I'm Christian. Oh, that's it. You're Muslim, yeah? Yeah, Muslim. Okay, so we had this long conversation. We ended up, you know, having a, a as you do, conversation about our faith. And, and, um, and I said, listen, you know, he was doing kind of typical um, moves to discard the scriptures and say that they're corrupted and resurrection isn't real. And all the things that normally happen in a, in a conversation with followers of Islam. But at the end of the day, I said, here's the thing. I said, I'm not going to convince you to become a Christian. I'm just going to pray, gives you a dream or a miracle or something that, that happens. I said, I'm going to not, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to defend Christ. It, it, it's true. I said, he says, he says, why wouldn't, he says, if this is true, why isn't everybody a Christian? I go, that's a great question. I have no idea why they wouldn't. I'm like, I don't understand why you're not a Christian. I said, it's the greatest news ever. That a God loves you. That God loves you. And he has given himself to you you might have a relationship with him and be free from sin and know that you have eternal life. I said, I can't imagine not taking that offer. And it was just so clear to me, this, this, the, the vision that he, he was like, that's just too good to be true. Couldn't possibly be the case. That's Elihu. Elihu's on to something about God's holiness, his righteousness, that honestly, we don't have a case before God, um, but he's wrong about God's distance and being removed from us. He misses the mark on that. He makes God so other as to tell God what he can and can't do. Big mistake, right? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he acts as though the Lord needs defending. That's what I write. Here. It's like, yeah, God, God doesn't need to. How do we know that? Because he speaks. Boom. In comes God. The Lord speaks. And what does he speak of? He begins with describing the order with which he has created all things. And he puts Job in his place as one who was not there. <laughs> Were you there when I told the ocean how far it could come up on the sand? You know, all these things, you know, basically just like, you know, were you there? Can you tame Leviathan, right? You know, these like epic 
things that he challenges Job. You know, these are the, the, the sort of quintessential rhetorical questions. Like, there is no answer for this. You know the answer is no to every one of these, right? Um, and and he's, so he's talking about the, the order and the grandness of, and the ancientness of, and the beauty of creation, while at the same time speaking to Job's finitude, his short lifespan, his limited vision. Okay? So he has this, this juxtaposition of the grandeur of creation and the limitedness of Job. Okay? So he sets the stage of like, just look at the, the reality that, that's before you. Um, it's a comeuppance in the biggest sense of the word. Um, God's point, what is it? It's to remind Job that due to his finitude, he does not know, cannot know enough to know whether God is righteous in all that he does or refrains from doing. Okay? He does not know enough to put his suffering into any kind of real perspective. He can't. And Job gets the message that he, he simply can't know all that God is doing in his providence. And so Job sees this and he drops his case. And he basically shuts his mouth. Job finds comfort even in this rather enigmatic answer from God. I love how G.K. Chesterton wrote about this. He says, Verbally speaking, the enigmas of Jehovah seem darker and more desolate than the enigmas of Job. Yet, Job was comfortless before the speech of Jehovah and is comforted after it. He has been told nothing. Okay, Remember when the, the Lord speaks, nothing has been returned to him. He is still in the depths of his suffering. Nothing has changed. All that has changed is he's heard from the Lord. And he's basically been told, I'm God, you're not. Okay? He's been told nothing. But he feels the terrible and tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain his design is itself a burning hint of his design. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Okay, y'all, this is, this is all at the same time really beautiful and really frustrating. What, what's being said here is that God is like, he's like, I am so infinite in my glory and righteousness that any amount of suffering that you experience is so infinitesimal in comparison to the glory of God as to become nothing. And that because I can't tell you, and so Job's like, because he can't even get that grand thing into my little head, I can be at peace. And know that all will be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So, on the last nights, I went to a hotel in Jerusalem called the American something. I can't remember and in that hotel, uh, it was founded by a man. Um, let's see if I can find um, the, uh, this paper. But um, by a man who, um, 
was uh, was the head of a hotel in Chicago, and he made his way over to um, made his way over to um, Jerusalem to find found this hotel, and then was inviting his his wife and daughters to come join him, uh, and on their uh, the transatlantic from going from the states, I think, over to Britain first. Um, the ship sank. Her mother survived. The daughters did not. And he got a telegram in Jerusalem that said two words: "All lost." And then he penned uh, this poem, which began became a hymn. And read his handwriting. When this is the original that they have in the lobby of the hotel that he founded in Jerusalem, maybe this will ring bells with you. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like something, like what? Sea billows roll. That's what it says here. Um, I can't read that word. I have, but a lot, uh, something, um, and I should have just got the printed version of this. I can't read his handwriting. Anyway, it is well with my soul, right? You know, this him, it is well. Okay, a man of the depths leans on to the otherness and glory of God, but also the personalness of God. And of course, in this case, it's the gospel. We're going to get to that momentarily. That's the purpose of this book. That's the message of this book. It is well with my soul, despite the sea billows rolling in sorrows. It's about the relationship between a righteous people and God. And a righteous people are people that have wisdom. They're people that fear the Lord. That's it. Righteousness is its own end. The Lord is the end. It's not the means to the end. He is the end. One commentator put it this way, the purpose of the book of Job is not to resolve the problem of suffering, but to define the proper relationship between humans and God as based on divine mercy and human faith. It sometimes doubts, but always trusts. I'm sure, as this man wrote this hymn, he had to have doubted. Yet he trusted I don't understand it. I don't think it's deserved. I don't get it. Sometimes the righteous suffer. And likewise, as I look over here and this wicked person over here is just rolling in butter, is succeeding on every level, in earthly terms, it is insignificant. And sometimes the righteous prosper. Right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the Lord. Right? All of those kinds of ideas. That is the, the picture of wisdom. And that's what the book of Job is trying to present. And ultimately, here's what Job gives us and how we can hold on to these things perfectly now on this side of the resurrection. And that is, is that Job is a type of, I think, first and foremost, the suffering servant, and then a, the suffering servant, of course, is Jesus, right? So in Job, we see a righteous man who clung to his faith and integrity throughout his trial. He emerges from his undeserved suffering with vindication. Sound familiar? 
Job is this type of the suffering servant. Job is a his harsh suffering and faithfulness to God through it is 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 you can't help but say, okay, I can see the, the Garden of Gethsemane. I can see the Lord Jesus like, Lord, I wish you would take this cup away from me. I'm a righteous man. I do not deserve this cup. And yet, not my will, but thy will be done. I will surrender and submit to your greater purposes. I will suffer. I will die on the cross. Now, I'll, I'll finish with this and then we'll open up some questions. G.K. Chesterton, last thing for him. Here is the very darkest and strangest of the paradoxes. And it is by all human testimony the most reassuring. I need not suggest that what high and strange history awaited this paradox of the best man in the worst fortune. I need not say that in the freest and most philosophical sense there is one Old Testament figure who is truly a type or say what is prefigured in the wounds of Job. By his wounds, we read, of the suffering servant, we are healed. Peter picks that back up. In First Peter, it says, of Jesus, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus perfectly exemplifies true wisdom, fear of the Lord God Almighty. He lays down and takes upon himself and opens not his mouth, even as he is suffering. Speaks only a word of forgive him, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Um, even as in that same place he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't. He's in the dark. He cries out. And yet God's glory is vindicated in and through the cross three days later. All right. Hair on fire? That was fast. Okay. A little bit of time. I think. Do we have time? No, not much. Sorry. One question. Who wants to ask the one question? All right, well then. If you want to send me email questions, feel free to do that. Um, and uh, next week, I think you're up, Elizabeth. Excellent. You are doing... I'll do a, a summary okay. of all the wisdom books. And okay. then we'll focus on Psalms. Psalms. Yeah. Oh, wow. Outstanding. I will sadly be gone. I am doing a family wedding. Um, so I will not be here, but I trust that uh, Elizabeth will bring great and she'll probably handle the time better than I did. I never know how much, I, you know, you always run out of time. All right, let's pray as we, as we close. Um, so Father, we do come before you as humble creatures and yet Lord, we know by your glorious grace and mercy that you have loved us care for us, that you have great purposes for our lives. As Bishop Stephen is about to preach about, Lord, if we keep our eyes fixed upon you, trust in you, know that you are good, despite the circumstances around us, there will be ultimate vindication. There is eternal life. There is that great story where every chapter is better than the next, than the last. And it goes on forever. And this life, these sufferings, are but the dust jacket. Lord, we submit ourselves to that deep and abiding wisdom. Come and meet us with your wisdom. Envelop us with your wisdom that we would fear you um, and not be afraid and uh, 
sing your praises. Come what may. For it's in Jesus' name, the suffering servant, the crucified Lord, the risen Lord, the one who will come again with power and great glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, see you in church.